All righty then. So nice to have you guys back. Delicious dinner tonight. That was pretty stunning. So all you people who aren't here live, you're missing the dinner and you miss all the cool conversation before and after. So tonight we're talking about uh, the stores are no longer giving out change as the first step towards confiscating all your money or not using paper money anymore. So you missed out on all that, but, and we're not going to cover that tonight. Um, but I did, I get, uh -oh. um, I push buttons all the time and stuff happens. I don't know. Um, I've had the same question a few times this last week or so. And just to remind you guys, if you're uh, new, not listening, or, you know, not following everyone, which who would want to do that? Um, the stuff that we're talking about with regard to the end times is typically the stuff that's happening in the book of Revelation. So the idea being, if it is that close and this stuff is about to happen, then if the pre-tribulation rapture is true, which I believe it is, then uh, the rapture's right around the corner. Because all these other things that are happening after the rapture are about to happen. So I don't spend uh, much or really any time on the typical stuff from, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, because, you know, the New Testament is sort of the uh, description of the physical things around, you know, centered around the end times, the famines and the pestilence and the Israel coming back, you know, you know all those things. But the Tanakh is typically the spiritual things. And it's like Daniel parallels the book of Revelation. It's got the same sort of stories and the same sort of stuff and, you know, and all of that. So most of the stuff we're talking about are things that are happening right now, but they're things that are going to happen in the book of Revelation. So if it's true, then we can expect to be raptured, uh, you know, hopefully soon. So anyway, uh, We've been watching this uh, cancel culture, they call it, you know, ripping down all the statues and the guy, the Goya Foods president who donates something like $70 million worth of food a year to the poor and is this, you know, is, is apparently an all around good guy. And he met with Obama and, you know, did whatever it is that they do. And, you know, he worked with him on feeding the poor and food and all that stuff. So he met with Trump, you know, because he will meet with whoever. And everybody is all over him. And by everybody, I mean the 10% that you hear about on the news all the time. And so they want everybody to boycott his stuff. You know, it's the cancel culture, right? You, don't, you can't have an opinion unless if your opinion is different than theirs, then you need to be put down, basically. So, um, and you see him pulling down the statues and boycotting anything that's valuable and all that stuff. But I would suggest that we've seen, you know, they're trying to destroy history, our history of this country, and I assume probably in other nations as well. And you think, well, where's that going to stop? And I think I know it will stop uh, just before Jesus. They are going to try to cancel everything, including Jesus. So they're taking away our history there. You know, you've got black people tearing down the statues of Abraham Lincoln. And these statues of these blacks that have been freed from slavery and done fabulous things, they don't care. They're tearing everything down. They just want the history to go. Right, right. 
<laughs> Don Lemon says Jesus isn't perfect either. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's true. That's they're gonna. You know, that's the whole point is to destroy everything so that all you have left is them. That we listen to their news, their opinions. That you know, and that's the whole point of the one world government in Daniel and Revelation and everywhere else. It talks about that, and we will talk about that a little bit um, because I got a. a new epiphany. I keep thinking one world government means there's some head guy in charge of everything. And I was stumbling with how do you get 203 countries to suddenly give up their sovereignty to this one guy? Well, I don't think that's how it happens. And I'll tell you how it's going to happen, ju judging by some of the things I've seen and read this week. Um, but I, I want to mention in part and parcel to all this stuff, um, and I'm from California. Some of you may be somewhere here and there. In California, they built these bullet trains, several of them. And on the East Coast, they did the same thing. And they spent billions and billions and billions of dollars to build these super fast trains, but they don't go anywhere. They're the bullet trains to nowhere. And everybody was, you know, in California, the, the one I'm most familiar with, left from a city called Cloverdale, which is a city of like 8,400 people, and goes what, like 90 or 120 miles or something to another city that's like 5,500 people. And it's 30 or 40 miles away from the, this is in Northern California, from the nearest BART station, Bay Area Rapid Transit. So if you're living in Cloverdale and you have to go to San Francisco, you have to ride this bullet train, get off the bullet train, take a bus to the nearest BART station, get on a BART, take it to wherever you're supposed to be. I mean, it's stupid. And nobody could ever figure out why they were doing it. Oh, yeah, and the Chinese got the contracts to build it, of course. Well, all of a sudden, we're starting to figure out why they built them. <laughs> and, you know, of course, the imminent domain, they have to take the land. And so they didn't just take like a strip of land. They're going through all these farms, and they're taking the farms. And I, there was a lady who is, this is her job. She's a Bay Area uh, imminent domain supervisor. You know, she figures out how to get people off their land. And, of course, the first thing you do is you offer them a reasonable amount of money. And most people will say no thanks. And then there's a whole series of steps they have to do before they actually just come in and take it. So she's described, and it got to her, she's done this for 40 years. And it's finally getting to her. It's just not right. You know, and they do stuff like uh, they'll shut the water off. Well, most of them are on wells. So they do stuff to the water. And then they shut the electricity off. Well, a lot of them generate their own electricity. And, you know, they do all these things to make it impossible for them to live there so that they have to sell and move because they want the land. So they're putting this bullet train in, you know, the trains to nowhere, they call them. But they're buying all this land around them. And so now it's coming out that they're using this or they will be using this land to build these you know, big concrete high rises, they're just going to pack people in because they're trying to move everybody out of like where we live or even more rural places and get us all into the city so we can be controlled. But there's no room in the city. So they have to build all of these new places. And these bullet trains are serving that purpose. And they've in part and parcel to all this, and maybe you guys know this, it's actually illegal for me to collect rainwater here and to grow my own food. Currently, that's the law. You can't, and that goes back to, if you, if you read, and I don't know why you would, uh, Gorsuch's new book, A Republic, If You Can Keep It, it's the most frightening read you'll ever do because he's basically saying there are no laws. And the people who make the laws aren't legislators. They're 
appointed like the EPA and all this stuff and their laws take precedence over the laws that the legislators pass. And there's 270 of those laws for every law the legislators pass. So when something goes to court, if it's one of those 270 laws that haven't been written by legislators, judges can't adjudicate it. So they have to get a judge from like the EPA or something who judges over it. Well, duh, how are they gonna choose? But you've got the EPA, and I mentioned them, there's hundreds of those non-governmental organizations, I guess, because they've passed all these laws about water, right? They're protecting our water rights. So what they're saying is basically, the state owns all the water. If it's in a lake, if it's in a river, if it's running off of your roof, if it's coming down your rain gutter, it's their water. You can't collect it. And I remember in Eagle some years back, maybe in probably in 2011, um, that became an issue. And they started going on and citing people that had rain barrels on their rain gutters. And it didn't last very long, but the laws are still on the books. So at any moment, if you own a farm or, you know, a, a house like this or whatever, at any moment, they can come take it or arrest you or jail you for using their water because it fell on your roof and it's theirs. So that's, you know, part and parcel of this whole imminent domain thing. When they want to move you off the property, the laws are already in place. There are a number of things they can do to make it so that you can't live where you live. You have to go somewhere else. I was listening to a uh, lady in Houston who, and the thing, thing about all this stuff is, is all of these people that are in charge of all this stuff, they have all these degrees and all these associations and they're affiliated with this group and that group. Well, and they're all affiliated with the UN or the H, the, the WHO or CDC or somebody, or a lot of them are affiliated with all these people. And this one guy is affiliated with all of those, plus the Defense Department and the State Department. And he's involved with a bunch of states. And he's the guy who wrote this, uh, this happiness initiative for the UN. You know, the hap, what is it? Capitalism. Capitalism. We're all going to be happy by 2050. It'll be awesome. So I was listening to this one lady in Houston. And she's a virologist, a disease expert. And she's currently working for the Meningitis Foundation, but she has all these posts in the UN and the uh, World Health Organization and all that stuff. And she's talking about vaccinations, of course. And she says, I live in Houston, the most diverse city in the entire United States. There are seven Asian languages spoken and 15 uh, Hispanic languages and, you know, and all this stuff. Awesome. Great. And she says, immigrants want to be vaccinated. We don't have a problem with them. It's the white people that are going to give us the problem. So the obvious solution is kill them. This is what she says. She's a white lady and probably wouldn't be vaccinated to save her life because she knows what it's all about. But she's, say, she's saying at a conference, I mean, it's recorded. She's saying we need to get rid of the white people and bring more immigrants in because the immigrants want to be vaccinated. They want this stuff we're going to shove down their veins, as Bill Gates says. So it's like, huh, well, this is, this is all fitting together. And of course, Agenda 21 is the UN thing about the one world government. And its full implementation is designated to be by 2030 or before. 
And this is the thing that I think most people probably look at and, you know, kind of laugh to yourself, right? How are you going to get 203 nations to cede their sovereignty over to, it's not going to happen. You wouldn't be in politics if you weren't an absolute narcissist, egomaniac jerk. That's the only reason you could be in politics. So you're not going to just give it up. And it hit me when I was looking at all these NGOs and all these people and all these groups, they're not going to give it up. The UN is using them because everybody in all of these EPA, you know, the hundreds of thousands of NGOs around the world, everybody seems to be tied into a post at the World Health Organization or at the uh, Council for Economic, whatever it is, or the CDC or all this stuff. And those are the people that actually make the decisions. It's not the politicians. And that's what Gorsuch was saying in his book. He's a Supreme Court justice and has no clue how cases are going to go because there's no law. The very little bit of American law that's left, he can adjudicate. But most of it is just these corporate NGO, you know, we pass a law that all wetlands belong to the state. I didn't get to vote on that. I didn't get to vote for the guy that voted for it because nobody voted for it. These people were appointed and they write their own laws and all of a sudden they have the same effect as a law that's written correctly and properly, honestly. So that's how you're gonna take over the world. Every country has hundreds, thousands probably of these groups and all the people in these groups or at least the people leading these groups are affiliated with Agenda 21, which could be the World Health Organization, the CDC, there's I mean, there are, if you go on their website, which I mentioned, put up there the other day, uh, you can go and find anything, transgender rights, gay rights, lesbian rights, um, obviously climate change, everything, the whole bucket list of crap that's against God, against the Lord. And that's the point. We want to eliminate God. We want to eliminate common sense. Everybody has to do exactly what they say we're going to do. So that's how they do it. And then I was reading this thing today or yesterday or last week, this sometime earlier this week. Um, that, and I don't know if this is true. I haven't been able to actually uh, figure this out completely yet. But the, 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 the argument is, and this is why I think it's probably true, is because a president of Brunei or some, some African nation you've probably never heard of, came out and said, you know, he's received this thing from the UN that if we don't follow along with the COVID thing, then there's going to be a worldwide recession that's going to crush our country. It'll go on for five to seven years before the United Nations can get it under control. So it's going to crush the economy of all of the countries. Okay, so two days later, the guy's assassinated. That's interesting. And then a couple days later, another president of another company, a country in Africa, comes out with the same sort of thing. He's, he's reading from a document that he purports is the same UN document that we need to get on board and do these things for the good of the country to avoid this recession. And he's reading that, you know, the UN needs $5 trillion and to implement because they're going to shut down all the small businesses and people are going to be unemployed and they need to be able to fund the rescue of these people. So they need $5 trillion. So how are they going to get it? Because ostensibly they don't make money. We give them money. 
right? So all of a sudden, every country in the world, is, which is the United States, going to give them more money? I mean, how's that work? So here's how it works. Um, <laughs> out of all of the COVID, quote unquote, deaths in Europe, not so much in this country, but in Europe, 95%, 90-95% of them have been elderly people. Bless you. 95% have been over 60, 90% have been over 80. So all the old people are dying. Well, in socialist Europe, in England, they all have pensions and they all have socialized medicine. And anybody over 65 costs the government a ton of money because they're no longer working. They're not, because in Europe, you can retire when you're like 19, I think, and get full benefits. You know, so the government is paying all these people just to be alive. And of course, because they're old, they're sick. So they're paying for their cancer and they're paying for their heart transplants and they're paying for, you know, if they live through the two year waiting time to get there and it's costing them a fortune. So we need something that's gonna kill all these people. But it does, we don't want it to harm the young people because we need them to grow up and get a job and pay taxes and we'll increase the taxes of course, but we'll provide more benefits. That's how we get our money, right? Is we eliminate all these old folks. So you look around the world and you see like Putin is now uh, president to what, 2036 and Xi Jinping is what president for life. And of course the uh, Kim is president for life. And there's all these people that's, well, North Korea guy, he's always that way. But like Russia and China, that's, that's a good portion of the world. It's population anyway. They're now presidents for life. And you're thinking, well, how did this work out? Nobody voted for that. Not, not that Soviet countries or communist countries, you get to vote, but how did that work out? And nobody said anything. And, and again, I have no idea. I'm not, uh, you know, I don't run in that realm. But some of these people are saying it's working out because it's all tying into this Agenda 21, this one world government thing. You need somebody in charge for the company, the country, who the people will look up to and will do what they say. We can't be having leadership changes all the time because we're laying down what has to happen. So we have, have to have people in charge of these countries that will do what we're asking them to do. So you've got all these big nations and India is another one. They have elections, but they're thinking, you know, how they don't really want to do elections. They want somebody there who's going to be dependable for the UN for decades, well, at least until 2050 when the whole happiness initiative sets in. Okay. So it, to, to, and maybe you guys already had this figured out. I'm not often the smartest uh, guy in the drawer, but to me, it's all of a sudden making sense that you don't need one guy, you know, at the top. I mean, there will be one guy, but you don't need to know who he is because he's just some unelected guy that, works at the UN that, you know, knows all these people that are in all these different committees that, you know, and, and that's how you get laws done. That's how you get stuff done. In this country, that's how you get it done nowadays. You can't expect your state senator to write a bill that makes any sort of sense at all and have it passed and become law. It'll never happen. So you have to elect, I mean, you have to appoint 
all these different committees that nobody would possibly vote for, they pass the laws. So that's how the world seems to work right now. So I want to read from the book of, oh, that's, uh, we're still heading east. The, rev, the, the rapture is right at the end of that road. Um, Revelation 20, verse 4, and you're probably pretty familiar with this one. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgments were given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Yeshua and for the word of God, which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had they received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with the Messiah for a thousand years. Well, we've all heard about the guys beheaded during the, you know, the tribulation and how they're, they will, you know, they'll, they, this will be not good, but not bad. If you, if you miss the whole rapture deal, um, this is your best opportunity to get there, is to reject all the stuff, the mark and all of that, and be beheaded. And of course, we read that and think, really? Beheaded? Okay, so Obamacare, billing code, ICD-9-CME-978, applies to all executions performed at the behest of the judiciary or ruling authority, whether permanent or temporary, as, that word, by gas, beheading, or decapitation by guillotine, capital punishment, electrocution, hanging, poisoning, shooting, or other specified means. Now, does that seem odd to you that that's in, and in, 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 you know, I'm not a big defender of Obama, but in his defense, this, while the wording was changed and the coding was changed in Obamacare, this has always been there. If you're beheaded by the government and you need to collect, I mean, you know, the guy who beheads you, he, he needs a salary, right? You can't just, you know, it's not a free job. He needs to collect. You have to bill it with a particular code, just like you would if it was a kidney removal or a, a cancer treatment or a COVID treatment. It has to have a billing code. Well, that's the billing code for beheading. Does that seem weird? Okay, if I told you there were 30,000 guillotines at FEMA camps around the country, would that worry you? There are truck drivers that have reported on delivering truck, semi-truckloads of guillotines and body bags and caskets. There was, they, they screwed up big time a few years back. They were turning one of the world's biggest Walmart super centers in Brownsville, Texas, into a FEMA camp. And they just did it in broad daylight and threw Walmart out of the building and turned it into a camp. And all the news people were there and everybody's reporting on it. It's still there. It's still a camp that they're not currently using. There are camps all over the country and there are truck drivers and there are military personnel that report why do we have all these guillotines? We don't kill people with guillotines, do we? Okay. <laughs> yeah, I don't think you're going to need it because by the time it pays off, you'll be gone. But since we're going to a cashless society, you may need to take all your cash and buy something. So, you know, who knows?
Okay, so back to the uh, billing codes, ICD-9, CM, and then there's a number. There are 155,000 billing codes. And that's why the doctors and hospitals are so upset about Obamacare or nationalized medicine or socialized medicine or any of that stuff. They have to keep track of this. They have to pay staff to know exactly what billing code your particular issue is so they can be reimbursed. Well, the interesting thing is these codes are World Health Organization codes. So every time a, a, a claim is submitted, say through Medicaid or, or through your private insurance to be paid, it has to have this code and it has to go into the computer. Well, the computer dumps it all at the World Health Organization and at the UN. So both of those entities, because they know the code, they know exactly what's going on with you. They have your complete health records. So this whole uh, health privacy thing is crap because they're not saying on the invoice, you know, oh, we, we took a kidney or we chopped the guy's head off or whatever. So everybody thinks, oh, my records are private. Well, it has this number that explains exactly what it is they did, and it has your name and personal ID or social security or whatever. So it ties you to that, and it goes to the World Health Organization and to the United Nations. Why do they need to know? Okay. So the way they have to fund all this is, well, there's a couple ways. They can have the United States just continue to print money, which it does. And it doesn't seem to matter how much money they print. Nothing really ever happens. But they need to cut down on their expenses. So the best way to do that is to kill all the old people. Five trillion dollars so that they can give it away to people who are displaced or unemployed by a fake disease. I mean, it's not fake. It's real. But it's a man-made you know, let's get these people sick so we can implement this stuff. The goal has always been since the early 1900s to destroy all the mom and pop stores, to get rid of paper money. And we just talked about that before dinner, um, that now you can't even get coins because they're eliminating coins. And that's just the first step in eliminating paper money. So what do you do with your paper money? I mean, it's, you know, we discuss, oh, you can't pay your children allowance and you can't have a garage sale and certainly nobody can be paid under the table and all that stuff but most people have a stash of cash somewhere right you always have a rainy day stash or some people totally live on cash what happens when they take the paper money black market maybe but they will do something like i mean sure they're gonna there's there are too many really wealthy people that have too much cash on hand. They can't, they can't just say it's worthless. So what they'll say is, all right, you have two months or 60 days or 30 days or 15 days or whatever to turn it in, turn it to your bank and we'll apply this to the, you know, to the electric money. So the law is if you show up, if, if you are stopped or caught or go to the bank or whatever with more than $10,000, the government has a right to take it until you can prove you earned it, not by drugs or anything else. If you earned it legally, well, it's cash. You can't, how are you gonna prove it? 
you can't prove it. And there have been thousands of people, mostly black, who have been stopped by the police because their taillight's broken or whatever. And they look in the car and they find a bag of money. Well, he saved this money for 15 years and he's driving to California to buy his mother a, you know, whatever. And is it legit or not? I don't know. I mean, some of them seem really legit and some of them seem pretty shady. I'd take the money too. But the point is, that's the law. So at any moment, they might say, okay, turn all your cash in because we're going to this electronic thing. And then if you turn it in, you don't get it. They take it because you can't prove how you earned it because it's cash. That's the whole point of cash, right? So what do you do? You know, and I'm thinking, I'm, I'm hoping that the rapture comes first, but if not, what do you do? So you would have to buy something with the money in cash that would be useful in a society that doesn't have cash. Exactly. It does say something about gold and silver being worthless. So that's, that's kind of, you know, where I'm thinking now is, well, what do you do with it? And I have a neighbor who his, his, his email handle is ammo is the next goal. You know, that's the point, right? If you can buy stuff that you can barter with, because if paper money is useless, gold and silver is probably going to be useless. What, what can you barter with? Food, ammunition, water, ways to purify water, maybe tools, skills to fix stuff or do stuff. Um, sex and drugs, of course, always been popular. Um, you know, so you have to think through, well, what is my, what does my retirement look like now? Because if you've saved up a bunch of cash, you know, and I know people who are older than we are, who have gone through so much government stuff in the past, they run on cash, and they bought their houses with cash and all that. Well, if you're not quite there where you can buy the property or whatever with the cash, but you have a lot of cash and they decide they're going to take it, but they're going to give you electronic money for it. Do you do it? Do you give them the money or do you go out and pay cash for a new car or guns or, you know, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what's, what, what's happening or what's going to happen. Hopefully we won't be here to have to deal with it. Um, you look at Fauci and bricks, you know, the scarf doctor, you know, and they were both knee deep with Gates in the whole COVID thing. And they ran the thing in Boston that experimented and tried to uh, modify the COVID virus until 2015 when Obama offed it to China. So then they just kept, kept it up there. Well, how many decades do you need to work on the COVID virus until you get it right enough to let it go? You know, and what do you want to do? You want to kill the old people, but you don't want to harm the young ones because you're going to need them. And you're brainwashing them anyway in school and with the news and, you know, everywhere they look, they get Agenda 21 stuff. They get World Health Organization stuff. They get socialism. They get communism. That's all they know to the point where now when somebody like me or any of you says something, they just call me boomer. You know, like that's that's a bad thing, right? I have experience and knowledge and wisdom. That's not valuable to them. The only thing that's valuable to them is ripping down statues and 
and getting free stuff and the government's going to take care of me. And, you know, you're an idiot for thinking you have to do it yourself. And, you know, you can see where this is, where this is going. So recently, as not only me, but I mean, most people have predicted that there's going to be a spike in COVID because they need to reassert themselves. They need to make you wear that mask because too many of us aren't doing that. And they need to keep you afraid. And there's been these huge spikes. So what they don't tell you is the tests that they use can't determine whether you have a COVID antibody or you have the actual disease because it's the same thing. So the test comes back positive 50% of them are false positives anyway. So of the other 50%, how many of them are antibodies and how many of them are real COVID? Nobody knows and nobody cares because all they want to do is jack the number up, but they keep jacking the number up, but the deaths keep dropping. So you can logically assume that that's, uh, you know, that they're getting a lot of antibodies. And then this week or last week or something, somebody finally busted the CDC and they admitted it, that in the beginning, the te all the tests in the, in the beginning came from the CDC. They were all contaminated with COVID. So they were giving it to you. If you didn't have it and you went in for a test, you were getting it. And now they've admitted, oh yeah, that was a terrible mistake. We're so sorry we did that. I don't know what happened. We were, we were you know, we were testing the COVID test kits and making the new ones in the same room. That's not our protocol. That's not normally what we do. So of course, all the test kits got infected with COVID. And if you didn't have it, they were happy to give it to you. So I don't know. So the, the deal with all this is, oh, the, the, other, th <laughs> the other thing is, um, there's this thing called preconditioning. People, some people believe Hollywood is in bed with, you know, the wrong crowd. And that's not too hard to believe. And all these movies, bless you, have been um, like, do you remember Logan's Run? Anybody? Probably not. Okay. Well, Logan's Run uh, was a movie where life was good. Oh, looky there. Life was good until you were 30 and then they killed you. So apparently it was about this guy, Logan, who was breaking out because he was turning 30 and he didn't want to die. Um, Zardoz, Soylent Green, Slaughterhouse-Five, Westworld, Dark Star, Omega Man, and dozens and dozens and dozens of other movies have the same sort of idea. And it's a pretty common idea, right? 1984, Horror Worlds, 1984, and all sorts of books are the same thing. And it's all the same idea that once you get to a certain age, you know, you're useless. You're costing us too much. You're out the door. Except, of course, the people running the whole shebang. They can be older. So this idea of preconditioning is that these guys make these movies so that we're used to the idea. And there will always be a hero and this Logan escapes or, you know, and all the, the, the stars in these things are Charlton Heston and Bronson and, you know, all these manly men guys and they find a way to get out. You know, that's always the hope because the oppressive government's going to come down and kill you when you're 30 or 45 or 60 or whatever it is. But there's somebody, you know, fighting for us. That's, that's the whole idea behind all these movies. So they're preconditioning people to hear that is what many people think. Okay, look, so I mentioned that stuff. Um, 
only for this reason. And that's why we're going to be doing Genesis 24 <laughs> is because the Gentile bride of the son moves into the father's house and we're gone before this stuff happens is the hope. And this is the story of Genesis 24. It's the story of the book of Ruth. It's the story all through the Old Testament. You can't, you know, like they say, you can't swing a dead cat through the Old Testament and not find this idea if you look for it. So when I say this stuff about what's happening and, you know, how bad it is and how unfair it is, and that's actually good because the rapture would not come if these things were not ready to happen. And these things are ready to happen. And if we can't be here for it, then that means the rapture is soon. And if the rapture is soon in anybody's book, well, not anybody's book, but hopefully in everybody in this room's book, that's a good thing. And it's, it's heartbreaking in a sense because we're seeing what's happening to the country and we're seeing people just, you know, being lied to and, and eating it up and all that stuff. But on the other hand, it's, I mean, this is, this is, literally what we've lived for our entire lives, you know, is to, is to meet the Lord in heaven and be with him for all eternity. And if this is true, if, if the pre-tribulation rapture is true, and if it has to happen before all these things come to fruition, it's months, maybe years, but not, not a long time. You know, the technology it describes in the Bible is available today. In five years, it'll probably be a better technology. Um, you know, all of this stuff that they describe in Daniel and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Hosea and Malachi and, you know, all of this stuff is happening now. That's good. So what do we do? And that's, um, that's where we're going to go. You know, every, every, everywhere I go, or most of the places I go, and I meet a lot of people every day doing stuff for them, and there's usually a way to bring it up. <laughs> You know, just I can make a comment about the rapture or, you know, and I've been putting on some of my bills, you know, uh, no refund uh, if raptured or something like that. And I sent a, I ordered a bunch of shutters for another blind company and on the, on the invoice I said, if I'm raptured and you're not, you need to find a guy to receive and install these. If you're raptured and I'm not, please leave the paperwork out so I can collect from the owner. If we're both raptured and John, the guy building the shutters, is not, do we really care? So there's, you know, and it causes people to ask, what are you talking about? Or if they're Christians, to think. And I've gotten into some pretty interesting discussions. One of these guys was, he'd never really thought of it. Christian all his life, great guy, just, you know, excellent family. Super nice guy. Apparently, he never really thought about it. And he says, well, what do you mean? Doesn't everybody go? So I go, what do you mean, doesn't everybody go? What would be the point of the seven-year tribulation if everybody went? Well, I don't know. Why did Jesus say to the church, some are on the broad road, some are on the narrow road. More people are on the broad road. If everybody was going, well, I don't know. You know, so it's just a way to get them to think. And if the, if the fields really are white unto harvest, which I believe they are, and if we really were put here for God's own reasons at this particular point in all of the history of history, which I believe we were, then you have to ask yourself, what does God want me to do? And 
I would suggest the wheel, <laughs> the fields are white unto harvest. We need to go harvest. We didn't plant, we didn't water, but the time is here and we can, you know, we can make a difference. Okay, Isaiah 6, 5 through 8. And again, I give you these verses, and my hope is you'll go back and read the whole uh, chapter because they're usually really good. And then said I, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. Amen. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this has touched my lips, and thine inequity is taken away, and thy sin is purged. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I, send me. You know, isn't that sort of, hopefully that's our response. We're here at the end of time, I believe, and stuff is happening at a breakneck speed. And everybody knows something about what's happening. And it's not hard to engage them in conversation. And I was talking to a guy the other day, and he actually wanted to hear about it. So I was talking about the rapture and all that stuff. And, you know, what I thought was true. And, and so after maybe an hour or so, he looks at me, and I was there fixing some motorized blinds for him. He says, well, why are you even here? I said, just for you, buddy. I don't know. I ask myself that every day. Why, is this really what I should be doing as the world comes to an end? And perhaps it is. I don't know. You know, I was talking to a, a buddy of mine yesterday. He does the same thing I do, works on blinds and stuff. In fact, he's probably out there now. Um, and I was giving him some parts, you know, out of the truck. He needed some parts to fix a blind. And we're talking about this stuff because he and I see it pretty much eye to eye and all that stuff. And it's like, what are we doing here? <laughs> If, if we're really going to get raptured in six months or two years, or what are we doing here? What, is, this, is this really what we're supposed to be doing is working on people's blinds? Now, I don't know. Maybe, because it gives me an opportunity to talk to people. But it, it does feel uh, somewhat like I should be doing more. <laughs> I don't know. So anyway, but that's, you know, that's, that's you guys. You need to figure out what it is to do. So uh, we did a camp. Gosh, it's been 25 years ago, high school camp, and that was the name of it. Here am I, send, send me, you know. And this, this, I mean, we weren't talking about the rapture like this, but we were talking about what, what's your purpose in life? Are you going to go along with the world and do what the books say and your teachers say? Because these are all high school kids. Or are you going to find out who the Lord is and do what he, he wants you to do? And it's, the, the question is still valid today. So Luke chapter 10, verse 23 and 24, and he turned him to his disciples and he said privately, blessed are the eyes which see these things that you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see those things which you have seen and have not seen them and to hear those things which you hear and have not heard them. And after that camp, when I was coming down, it was up in Big Bear and we would come down on the big bus. We, you know, we'd have 60 uh, small calvaries there so I'd bring my high school group coming down on the bus and that's all I could think about because it was such an amazing camp and such things happened that were just unbelievable and it's like I have seen things and heard things 
the kings and prophets desired here. And I would suggest to you that we're living in a time right now that you're seeing things and hearing things that kings from time immemorial have desired to see and hear. And what are we going to do about it? Luke 10, starting in verse 1. And you guys should know this. You probably won't know the address, but you know the story by heart. And after these things, the Lord appointed other 70 also and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place, whether he himself would come. Therefore said he unto them, Truly the harvest is great, but the laborers are few. Pray thee therefore that the Lord of the harvest, that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. Go your ways, behold, I send you forth as lambs among wolves. That seems fairly prophetic now. Carry neither purse nor scrip nor shoes, salute no man by the way, and unto the oh, and into whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And I'm thinking that's how I'm going to enter every home of every person I talk to from now on, instead of greeting them with, you know, how's it going? Peace be to this house and see what happens. Because my card, if they read my card, they have to know what the deal is. And if the son of uh, if the son of peace be there, your peace shall rest upon it. If not, it shall turn to you again. And in the same house remain eating and drinking such things as they give for the laborers worthy of his hire. Go not from house to house into whatever city you enter and they receive you. Eat such things as are set before you and heal the sick that are therein and say to them, the kingdom of God is come near unto you. And amen, the kingdom of God is near. I mean, it's nearer now than it's ever been. And people don't know. People who think they're Christian, and maybe they are. I mean, I'm not saying they are or aren't. But people who believe themselves to be Christians are clueless. Most of, I rarely run into anyone that knows anything about this. They've, you know, they, they haven't even heard about the rapture or they don't know about the end times. It's like, well, what church do you go to? You know, oh, I'm a Methodist. Uh-huh, what do you talk about? Well, you know, God loves you and doing good. Awesome. You want to know a little bit about the end? And they're sh they don't even want to know. They really don't want to know. Isaiah 6, 12 and 13. Until the Lord has sent everyone far away, and it's this word that, interestingly enough, means a faraway place in time or distance. Until the Lord has sent everyone far away, and the land is utterly forsaken, which is to leave for a price, and though a tenth remain in the land, it will be laid waste again. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be in the land. And so I go out there all day long, and I'm talking to people and doing stuff, and it is, uh, sometimes it's depressing how little people know and how little people are interested. How few people actually, I mean, this could happen in a month. How few people even want to know about it as though it's not, and they're not implying I'm crazy and maybe that's what they think, but they're just, I'm, oh no, I've got stuff to do. I, you know, like, like Mike one, we were talking about the other day, I've got to go to my coach's meeting. I, I, I can't, I, you know, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And this won't be it. And if it is this, Facebook takes it down because you can't be talking about this stuff. Okay, so this is what the book or the, well, the book, it should be its own book. Genesis chapter 24 is about. And that's why I wanted to, I hope, hopefully you guys all read it at least once. 
um, and we can, you know, we can start a little bit. Genesis 24 is in the Torah portion called the life of Sarah. And it's interesting that the Torah portion, of course, is Genesis 23 to 25, 18, which certainly covers all of chapter 24. But the half Torahs, 1 Kings uh, chapter 1 and John, well, you can see it up there, chapter 4. Genesis 24 is basically the account of all of Scripture. If you, if you could only have one little piece of Scripture that was just this small, I would suggest this be the one. If you could have a couple more chapters, I would suggest it's the book of Ruth. But this is, once you know this, this is really all you need to know. But interestingly, 1 Kings chapter 1 is the account of the wrong son of David pretending to become king. And John chapter 4 is the Samaritan woman at the well that parallels Genesis 24, another Gentile who came to know the Lord, right? So the cast of, of Genesis 24 is Avraham, and he's, uh, that means father of the multitudes, and he's portraying the father, you know, the, the guy, the father. Eliezer, which means God helps or helper of God, as the Holy Spirit. Yitzhak, which means laughter or joy. He is the son and is portraying the son. Rivka, or Rebecca, which means entangled. And Rivka is the Gentile bride of the son, which sort of represents us. So that word entangled is interesting because that's where we are. We are entangled in the world. We can't become disentangled. You can't just turn off the TV. You can't just not ever see a newspaper again. You can't not ever talk to people that, that have these liberal socialist outlooks. We are entangled in it up to our little eyeballs. And we need to disentangle ourselves to some extent, get our feet solidly on the rock, and then go out there like they're saying, two by two, and just talk to everybody. That should be our job. Um, the gamal, camel, it means, uh, gamal is a cool word. It sounds like camel in English, but it doesn't really have anything to do with camel. But camel is from a word in English is from a word gamal in Hebrew and it means it's it's translated as weaned uh, as a bunch of stuff it means uh, like a yield or burden bearer or something like that it's it's the picture of the Torah the Torah the law the judgments the statutes the instructions of the Lord those are the things that bear our burdens in that sense those are the things that we rest on they're not the things that tell us what to do they're like the guidelines on the road, the lines, the dots, they instruct us and help us. So the gamal is, or camel is important. Then Laban, uh, or Laban, sometimes we call him in English, Laban, uh, it means white bricks or, well, to make white or bricks, when you, uh, when you burn a brick in a fire to make it hard, it turns white. So this idea of bricks and fire and furnace and uh, hard work and, you know, all of this socialism stuff, you've got the arm with the, the big python and the, and the sledgehammer and he's pounding, you know, that's the picture of socialism, right? He's pounding steel on a furnace. That's the idea of totalitarianism, communism. And that's what you saw with Cain and Nimrod and the Pharaoh and all that. And it's portrayed in this story by uh, Laban or Levon. And then Sarah, who, who you know, uh, Abraham's wife, it just means female noble. And she's 
the mistress of this whole deal. And this Torah portion actually begins, called the life of Sarah. It begins with the death of Sarah. And if you remember, she died in um, Machpelah and the people of Heat. And he, it's that great, you know, Abraham and Ephraim, they have this conversation. Oh, my wife's died. I need a place to bury her. And he says, oh, yeah, we'll take whatever you need. And he says, well, I'd like that cave over there. And the guy says, yeah, just take it. You know, and he says, I'll pay you what it's worth. Oh, no, 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 no. What's 400 shekels of silver to, to us, you know, between us? And, of course, that was way overpriced. But Abraham paid it anyway. And that's where they're born. And this cave of Machpelah means doubles. And it's interesting that Abraham and Sarah are buried there. Yitzhak and Rivka are buried there. And Yaakov and oddly not Rachel, but Leah are buried there. So it is these three doubles that are buried there. And it's interesting that that piece of ground, because remember he bought the cave, but he also bought the field around it. He paid cash for that. He paid silver for that. That is one of two places that uh, a Jew actually bought because the Lord said, I'm giving you all this land. You know, why would they buy it? It's going to be theirs anyway. But there are two spots in Israel that they actually paid for. That those are their pieces of property. And of course, the Muslims have stolen back and, and built uh, uh, temples on them. But that's going to change. Okay, so John 12, 24, you know this one too. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains a grain of wheat. But if it dies, it beareth much fruit. So this is the picture of uh, Abraham and Sarah and, you know, these people that have died. And it's, it's in their death that that the word has come, that the truth has come, that the fruit has come, that great growth in our lives has come as a result of their death. Um, so let's see. Okay, so if you're looking at Genesis 24, again, this is the little precursor to it. Abraham came out of Babylon, right? He crossed the Euphrates. He was called Eber, crossing over is where you get the word Hebrew. So he crossed over and it's, he physically crossed over the Euphrates, but the picture is a spiritual one. He crossed over from the pagan idolatry of Babylon into following the Lord God of Israel. So he became a believer, you know, and, it, and that's how we got the name Hebrew is out of Eber and crossing over. So he came out of the darkness into the light. So he came from Babylon, which was an idolatrous place, but he came into Canaan. The Lord led him into Canaan, which was 10 times worse than Babylon. This was the worst place there could be. The Canaanites were reputed to be just the most vile, horrible, repulsive, terrible people there were. They didn't think anything about anything. I mean, they would kill anybody or, you know, it, there, were, there are no rules if you're a Canaanite. So why did he bring him from Babylon to Canaan if the picture is from the dark into the light? And I would suggest that he, he is the light. He came as a light into the darkness. And for us, we have to do the same thing. We have to cross over. Well, we've done that. I mean, I suggest everybody in this room and probably everybody listening or watching later has done that. We've crossed over. We've, we've become followers of the Lord God of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
we, yeah, we have died to self somewhat, you know, maybe not enough, but we've done that. So we're there. So if we've already crossed over like Abraham and we find ourselves living in Canaan, which is more and more what it's looking like, just remember, he was brought there by God to be a light in the darkness. So it goes back to, well, what are you going to do? If this really is the end, if the rapture is really right ahead, and if people miss the rapture, it's unlikely they're going to find God. Because once the restrainer is gone, once the church is gone, once any anchor is gone, it's going to be difficult for those people to find the Lord. There's going to be a deception so great that we would even fall for it if we were here, but we won't be here. So what do we do for those people? What do we do for all those people that I talk to that say they're Christians, but I don't know, I've never heard about that. Or I don't know, I don't think it's a big deal. I'm going to go. Why should I worry about it? Or, you know, and maybe, you know, maybe I'm wrong. I mean, I'm often wrong. Ask my wife. Maybe it doesn't matter. <laughs> maybe everybody will go, you know, that's crossed over. Maybe you can be a, 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 you know, somebody who's just sat in a pew for 50 years and never learned anything about the Bible. But, you know, you, you tithe and you love the Lord and that's, hopefully that's all it takes. But we're all here at this point in time and that's happening and we have knowledge they don't have. Is it okay just to sit on it? I don't know. That's between you and the Lord. But Abraham crossed over to become a light in the darkest place on earth. And I would suggest we're heading into a place that's going to be the darkest place it's ever been on the face of the earth. And it's going to need a few lights. Oh, I don't know much. In the dark, my three-watt garden light is a bunch of light. And it is getting so dark that any of my little three-watt friends, you guys are probably good for 10 or 15 watts. You shine a lot in the dark. And you may think, oh, I don't know anything, because you're looking at your light in light. And, of course, you don't see it. But it's going to get so dark that any little light is going to show. And that's probably our job. Uh, Eliezer, who's... This whole chapter 24, an interesting thing. We know who the servant of Abraham is. His name is Eliezer. We've met him a number of times, and we'll meet him a number of times again. But in chapter 24, he's purposely unnamed. He's just the servant. He's the, in fact, he's called the uh, 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 Rosh, what is it? The Rosh Yeshiva, that's it. Yeshiva is a Hebrew word for a school, a Hebrew school. He's the Rosh Yeshiva. He's the teacher, the head of the Hebrew school. He's, he's the servant. He's the head of the house. He's Eliezer. He's his servant. He's been with him forever. We know who he is, but we, ne we, we never learn his name in this event. And that's exactly the job of the Spirit, right? The Spirit is, he doesn't do this for him. You know, there's, I mean, not that there's, we've been, gone through this a million times. There's not really the three people and, you know, all, all that, but he's more than that. But he's the spirit. He's the spirit of holiness in Hebrew. He's our helper. And he goes unnamed. He doesn't do it for him. He does it for us. He does it for the Lord. He does only what the father asks him to do.
So in this book, of course, he's unnamed because all he's doing is what the father is asking him to do. He's the helper of God. So John 16, 13, how be it when he, the spirit of truth is come, he will guide you into all truth for he shall not speak of himself, but whoever, but whatsoever he shall hear that he shall speak and he will show you the things to come. And I would suggest as we get into Genesis 24, he's going to be doing exactly that. He's going to be showing us exactly what is to come. And it's a message that, uh, never gets old. Eliezer speaks only what Abraham taught him to speak or told him to speak. And when you read it, hopefully you've read this, Abraham goes through all this stuff. He says to Eliezer, or he says to his servant, his unnamed servant, this is what I want. And he lists off all this stuff. And then Eliezer repeats it all back to him. And then he, he goes to Rivka's house and he repeats it all again. And then he gets Rivka and brings her back and he repeats it all for the fourth time when he's, when he's recounting to the son, Yitzhak, what happened. So all he's doing, and you know, how, how many times do you have to do this to make this point? All he's doing is repeating the things of the father. And again, that's, there, there's a good lesson in that for us. Um, the father asked the spirit to make an oath. And it's this weird thing. Uh, place your hand under my thigh. And of course, the, the, the word is, uh, it, the menorah has a main shaft, right? And this word shaft, mitzrach, is this word. It's saying, place your hand on my shaft. It's like, okay, well, we can't write it that way in English because that's not a pretty picture. But that's what's happening. Because the idea is this, this oath that you're taking is not just any oath. This oath is for the seed and all the seed to follow because that's the way Hebrew thinks. Remember we're at Passover. We're not supposed to remember it as something that happened. We're supposed to remember it as we were there because we were there in the loins of our father because there is no father's 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 father in Hebrew. It's just your father. And we, we were at the Passover, we were at the Exodus, we were at the crucifixion, we were at all those things. We're not remembering them. We were there in the Hebrew mindset because we were in the loins of our father. So when he says, put your hand on my shaft, he's talking about all of the, the seed to come, everybody to come. So this is not just a promise of, well, like, you know, you've got two hours to do this. This is forever. This is all of this stuff. You know, all of the seed of Abraham to come is contained in this, um, in this promise. So the father sends the spirit back to his homeland to get a, get a bride, right? And you think, really? He, he came from there. He knows those people are pagan. They're idol worshipers why would he do that? And it's this idea of it, the most important for us, the most important thing in scripture is to understand this well, is that the bride of the son of the father is a Gentile bride. Well, that's us. If we think we're the bride, you know, we say it in English as the bride of Christ, the bride of Yeshua, the bride of the Messiah. 
and the Messiah is the son of the father. And in Genesis chapter one, verse one, word one, we learned that the father is building a house and he wants to fill it with his children and his family. Then you have to have a son who has to have a bride. We're the bride. We're the Gentile bride. All through the Tanakh, it's always a Gentile bride. It's never a Jewish bride. It's always a Gentile bride. That's us. So how do we get to become this Gentile bride that we're going to read about in Genesis 24 and the book of Ruth and so many other places? It's we have to cross over. We, ha we have to go from the, from the darkness to the light. But when we cross over, it's even darker there than it was where we started. And that's okay. That's good. It has to be that way because that allows us to shine. And that's, I believe, our calling and our purpose is we can live all of our lives. You know, I'm in my 60s, right? And I'm guessing some of you might be almost as old as me. We can live all of our lives and doing things for the Lord and you know, I can think back, we've had some fabulous times and he's done some wonderful things and I've seen marvelous miracles. And all of a sudden now that stuff is, that was just like a filler because this is what's really happening. This is the end. That's the field and it really is white. And he needs people to harvest because I talk to 30 Christians a week and they're not harvesting. The workers are few. They're happy to go. They don't really want to play too much of a part because, you know, people won't like me. I don't know. That's, that's your time. That's right now. So were there other people on earth when God created Adam? Does anybody know? Okay, that's the right answer. Nobody knows. Thank you for that. Nicely done, by the way. But the implication is there probably were. And so some people have postulated, and again, this is, you know, this is outside. I just want to make this clear. This is outside the bounds of, I'm getting this right from scripture. Uh, some people have postulated that there were people on earth when Adam and Kava were created and put in the garden, east in the garden towards the old, okay. And those people are represented by the Canaanites. And the Canaanites are irredeemable. Not to quote Hillary Clinton, but I just did. So if this is anything like true, think about that picture. God calls Avraham from his home. He crosses over the Euphrates, which 4,000 years ago is a, is a task. It's not like you just drive over the bridge. It's a huge rushing river and you don't have your floaties. So how do you get over there and take your stuff over there? So he gets over there and he finds himself in the middle of the Canaanites. And if the Canaanites, and again, this is, you know, I know, no, I'm not saying this is true. I'm just saying it's a picture you should recognize. If the Canaanites represent the people that were on earth when God created Adam and Eve, if they are truly irredeemable, God brought them into that spot to be lights. And we look around the world and go, oh my gosh, it's, you know, the world's going crazy. It's going, well, that's true. The world is going crazy. And we probably are surrounded by a whole bunch of irredeemable people. And you're thinking, why did God do this? 
because that's the plan. He needs a light. He doesn't need a light in a place where everybody knows him. You know, we all want to live in that church where everybody's awesome and saved and we're kumbayaing our ways right there. That would be great. But that's not useful to the Lord. You know, it's the sick that need the doctor. So he brings us to a place where the world is getting fabulously dark and it will get hugely painful. And if we're not careful, uh, we'll get swallowed up in that. And I have struggled, as some of you know, for weeks with the realization that America is done, that this country was such a great place, then it's done. It has to be done. I've read the book. America does not come to the aid of Israel. <laughs> We're done. And it's been hard for me. But I'm challenged by another guy who says, do you love America more than God? I don't want to love America more than God. I want to love God more than God. <laughs> so that's, that, you know, that's true with any of us. We have things. Well, I shouldn't say that. That's probably true with a lot of us. We have things that get between us and God. And in my case, I think it has been this idea of America. And I have to get past that. And I'm working on it. But for me to be useful for God, I have to be in a really dark spot. And that's good. Because out of the darkness comes the light. So, again, this is, this is all good stuff. But... Um, let's see. There are tons more stuff, but next week we'll pick up, um, we'll do a little more on Genesis 24. And there's no question that by the time we get here next week, there will be a whole bunch of other things that I will have to mention about the lie, you know, the, the end of times, things just and I really don't talk, like talking about the lie so much, but it's useful, or I found it to be useful when I'm out talking to people because they all know about something. They've heard something or, or approve of something or, you know, whatever. It's easy to get a conversation started. And the more you know about what's going on, the easier it is to get that conversation started. And then you can lead them to the play. And that's why I sent the Romans Road out a few weeks ago. Is in case you had any doubts, there's a quick, easy, simple way to lead people to the Lord. And that's the quickest, simplest, easiest way I know is lead them down the Romans road. But in order to do that, you have to engage them in conversation and you have to get them interested enough and worried enough and scared enough, I suppose, to want to hear these things. And my experience is it's even harder to do with people who are Christians than it is with people who aren't Christians. Those, those people can look at it sort of pragmatically and they know these things are happening and they've seen them and they don't really know why. And if you can tie it all together for them, then it gets them thinking and you're just throwing something out there that maybe this is true. If it is true and the Bible has said all this is going to happen, do you want to know why? You know, and it's for you. It's for you to be saved. It's for you to spend eternity with him and not be wrapped up in all this stuff. And when you're talking to your Jewish friends, um, you know, the entire purpose of the book of Revelation of those seven years that happens 
is God's grace for his chosen people, for the Jews, because they did not get on board. They don't know the Messiah. So he's giving them seven years when things are going to get super dark to get to know the Messiah. And those, if you're a pre-tribber, because you've got seven, you've got three and a half years and then the Antichrist is revealed and the temple and all that. And then the last three and a half are going to be really bad. We're not in the really bad part yet, but it's coming. But the whole purpose of the book of Revelation of those things to happen is that his people, the Jews, would be saved. And I would suggest that those seven years for us will be spent at his feet learning the, the Torah, learning the things that we don't know. Because we've already got the Messiah down. We already know who Jesus is. They don't. They have the, the Tanakh, the Torah, but they miss the Messiah. So they're going to they're gonna learn about the Messiah in seven really hard years. And like Paul said, our, our job is to make the Jews jealous. So how do we make them jealous? Because we know the Lord. We know the Messiah. And when we get taken, that's proof, and it's right out of the Tanakh. You know, I can show you a hundred places in the Tanakh where there's the pre-tribulation rapture. It's right in their book. They're going to see it. And we'll talk to them, and they don't have to necessarily be converted today. But when we're gone, they're going to remember what was said, and they're going to go back in their book and look and go, oh, my gosh, that was the Messiah. And they're going to die by being beheaded, but they'll be with us in the end. That's a question for God. <laughs> but see, the Roman, Romans, Paul says, if you, know, if you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and if you believe his father raised him from the dead, then you are saved. Well, that's a big step for the Jews. So in order for them to be saved, they have to recognize those two things. So what's going to cause them to recognize those two things? And I would suggest the only thing that will cause them is us speaking to them. They won't necessarily, some will, some will believe, many believe, especially when you can present it from the, you know, from their Tanai. But if they don't believe, they will at least have heard. And then they're going to see, look, these are the things that Daniel talked about. These are the things um, that Ezekiel said and Isaiah said, and look, all those people said they were going to be raptured and be with God, and they're gone. What am I supposed to believe? And many will come to the Lord. And that's a tough way to get there, but it's better than nothing. But again, it all it hinges off us talking to our Jewish friends. Because if we don't say anything, how are they ever going to know? I don't know. That's my thought.